Look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. I'd like to read our passage this morning out of the English Standard Version. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the reading of God's word. Have you guys ever had a big day in your life? What I mean by that, a day that you really looked forward to for a long time? Maybe it, as I ask that question, some of you guys are thinking about your wedding day, right? You looked forward to that day where it kind of seemed like the universe stopped to celebrate you. Where it kind of seemed like just for a day, everything revolved around you. It was your big day. Maybe your big day is, it has been a graduation day. Maybe for some of you, your big day is your birthday. And each year... You just, you love that day because it revolves around you and the, the universe is just celebrating you in that day and your, face, your Facebook's getting blown up with all kinds of notifications, people wishing you happy birthday and you, you just love your birthday. And you plan for these days and, and you hope for the best on these days and these days often provide us joy and giddiness well, well, in our passage today, we're going to be looking at the day of the Lord. This is Jesus' big day. This is his return. This is the day when all people will realize that Jesus is Lord. That all will bow down and recognize who he is. That he came into this world born into a manger, humble and lowly and meek. But will return one day with power and glory and majesty, and it won't be a secret or hidden. The day of the Lord is coming. So this is what we're going to be talking about today, guys, living in light of the day of the Lord. Now, when I say the day of the Lord, some of you guys might be thinking, okay, I've, I've heard that phrase throughout Scripture. The day of the Lord is, is, a, is a significant recurring theme that, that we see in, in especially prophetic literature of the Old Testament. If you read the Minor Prophets, you'll hear this word come up often. 
And at its essence, it refers to a time of Yahweh, God, his unmistakable and powerful intervention. The prophets would often use this term as a way of employing both warning and hope. The day of the Lord could be something of of salvation, but also judgment. It was an announcement of this judgment and salvation. Yahweh would intervene powerfully and effectively into the affairs of the world. So since we're, we're talking about the day of the Lord, Jesus' return today, it's interesting, when we, when we often hear about end times or the day of the Lord, I think a lot of our minds go different places, right? I was just talking with some guys in our church last month, we, we went out for dinner and, and the question ended up coming up, what was your experience like with, with end times in your church background going up? And it was quite interesting hearing some of these stories. These guys shared about how they, they talked about how there was this unhealthy amount of fear that was put on them. Where, like, they would go to bed, like, scared at night, thinking about the end times. Or, or they're, they're, they were given, like, these movies to watch or books to read that, that kind of produced this unhealthy fear. Or, or, or even, like, th- there was this, their view of, of eschatology, the, the study of last things, you know, it, it kind of produced this, this lifestyle of isolating completely from the world. And kind of living in this bubble and, and I'm going to pursue holiness and I'm not even going to step out and engage the world and live on mission and, and live out the Great Commission. But then on the flip side, I asked another guy this week, I said, what was your experience like with end times kind of growing up in your church? And, and he said it was actually the complete opposite. His church never talked about it. He said, I, I didn't have a church that really talked about dwelling and thinking on eternity and thinking about Jesus' return. And so just very focused on, you know, just trying to live a godly life here and didn't think much about eternity. So I say all this to say that we all come to the table with probably different backgrounds and experiences with end times. But I, but I say this because I heard a Bible teacher once say this. The purpose of studying the end times is not to make us fanatics, but to make us faithful and fruitful in the present. If we don't look at the end, we will miss out on some very important motivation to live this Christian life. So let's dive into our passage today. We're going to be kind of looking at verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be walking us through each of them, and we'll dive right into it. So Peter began his letter in 2 Peter encouraging his audience to grow in godliness. So when we started this series, if you look back to chapter 1, he's encouraging his audience to grow in godliness and combat the false teaching that is out there and to stand up for the gospel. We saw in in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 that God has given us all the resources to live godly lives. And we find Peter circling right back to this concept today in our passage, returning to the theme of godly living in the midst of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, as our motivation for godly living. So 2 Peter 3, verse 1, says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter is writing to his beloved here. He has deep care for the people of God. They are beloved by God. They are beloved by Peter. And he is stirring up this sincere mind in them of way of reminder that Christ is coming. We need reminders, don't we? We are forgetful, finite creatures that need reminders of truth. And Peter is wanting to stimulate here a Christian mind. He's trying to stimulate biblical thinking for his audience. 
to turn away from these false teachers who follow in their own sinful desires. We've seen throughout the book of 2 Peter that these false teachers are following in their sensuality. They're, they're greedy people. They exploit people with false words. And, and Peter here is reminding the people of God to remember the promise that the word of God has stated for years that Christ is coming back. And in verse 2 of 2 Peter 3, it says this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So through the predictions of the prophets, God has revealed his promise that he is coming back. We've seen it in the Old Testament time and time again. If you look through the book of Isaiah specifically, it points to the coming back of Christ one day. He said, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes, uh, so, excuse me, so remember what he said in, in chapter one. So he, he's alluding to the prophets here and predicting the coming of the Lord. And back in chapter one of Second Peter, he said this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone owns interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophets of Old Testament have predicted that the Lord is coming back, and the apostles of the New Testament, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus through the command of Jesus, as it says in this verse, talked about the coming of the Lord. So he's reminding us here that God's word has authority and has been talking about this through the prophets and apostles. Don't let these false teachers make you think otherwise, that Christ is coming back. We need reminders. He is stirring up his, his audience's mind here to think biblically. We need reminders so often, don't we? We need to be reminded of the gospel so often. We need to be reminded to get our wisdom from the word of God and not from the world. I, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes if I am not grounded in God's word and thinking and dwelling on the gospel, I can fall into that Christian karma kind of mentality, right? Where it's like, okay, all right, God, I, uh, I got in your word like seven days straight, like you owe me blessing now. <laughs> or like, okay, I, I haven't done this in a while, like I'm definitely getting punished. Like that can be something that we battle with, right? We need reminders to make us think straight and biblically. And so in, in verse 3 of 2 Peter 3.3, 3, the reason they needed this reminder was because there's scoffers out there. They needed to be reminded to be committed to the scripture and to live godly lives in light of these scoffers who are denying the coming of Jesus Christ. It says in the verse that scoffers are scoffing. Beware of the scoffers. Now this isn't a term we, we often use in our everyday vocabulary, right? I don't look at you and be like, ha, you're such a scoffer, right? Like nobody normally uses that, right? But as we look in scripture, we see this word scoffer come up and I want to point us through scripture to kind of explain what a scoffer is. In Proverbs 14.6, it says this, A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Or Psalm chapter 1, a very familiar verse, Blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of a scoffer. In scripture, scoffers are characterized by sinning with their mouth. They're, they're unteachable people. They're proud. They're a negative example. They speak falsely. And in this verse here, in 
2 Peter 3, verse 3, it says here that they follow their own sinful desires. They're people that live in the flesh. And these scoffers are denying the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And Peter is warning his audience, his readers here, not to cave in or be put off by these scoffers because they are acting like God has been completely inactive since creation. And these scoffers are people who are following their own sinful desires. So in verse 4 it says this, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the scoffer's logic is this. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're basically going, where is God at? Where has he been? Where is he? I don't see him working in the world around me. Since creation, he's really nowhere to be found. They are arguing since the creation of the world, the world is just operating like it has been since the beginning. And they feel as if God is not involved in the world and hasn't been. They scoff at the promise of his return. Because they're, in their minds, God isn't intervening and he never has been. So why in the world would you believe that Christ is coming back? So these false teachers are saying again, where is the promise of Christ coming back? Why are you believing that Jesus is going to come back? Why do you think that God will intervene? He hasn't done anything since creation. He's been inactive. He's been silent. How in the world can you guys believe that he's going to come back one day? But we know, as Christians, that we can trust our Lord. We know that we can trust his promises. We know that the word of God reveals that he is going to come back one day. And we know that God himself has intervened in history. Look at what he's done in the past. This is what Peter appeals to here. Look at how faithful God has been in his word. Listen to how Peter continues this argument in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says this, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water, and by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These scoffers are completely forgetting that God truly has intervened into creation and into the world. God created the heavens and the earth. That's what Peter's trying to say here. He, he created the heavens and the earth, and the scoffers are forgetting this. God created the world and made it exist with the word of his mouth. And that same world that he created with the word of his mouth was also deluged with water and perished. And what he's saying here is he's alluding back to the flood in Noah. God has intervened in the world. With the same word of his mouth, he created the world. But with that same word, he also can bring judgment into this world. And he also, if you look back to chapter 2, and Pastor Kevin talked about this several weeks ago, but you can look back in chapter 2 and realize that God sent destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sent the flood, and there's a story about the fallen angels. God has intervened into this world. 
Peter uses the idea of water here, which was one of the main elements that God used in forming the earth. And those same waters, a flood came and judged the earth. God does as he pleases, and he has intervened into this world. He is a God, as we've seen all throughout Scripture, that brings order into chaos. He's a God that's bringing order into chaos. That's who our God is. He's given us life and creation, but he's also brought judgment upon people who are evil and sinful, right? But not only has he intervened by by giving us life and creation, by also bringing judgment upon certain people, he's intervened by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Not too far before Peter was writing this. Jesus Christ came into this world to live the life that we couldn't have, to die, to rose again, and he's now ascended to the throne above. And do not forget this, that he is coming back one day. This is what Peter is arguing here. Now, I want to address something here really quick here this morning, and that's the idea of judgment. Because these scoffers, these false teachers, they are denying the judgment, the coming back of Christ. And I want to just say that I get that this biblical teaching of judgment can be a genuine stumbling block for those to come to Christ. And I've seen it firsthand, and I'm sure even some of you guys have had conversations about this, where some people, and maybe even someone here this morning might be uncomfortable hearing the idea of judgment here this morning. You know, I've seen this firsthand. I, I remember back in college, I, I, I had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with a good buddy of mine. And I remember him, him looking at me and being like, Josh, I just can't believe that God would allow people to go to hell and be judged. Josh, I can't believe, like, I, I only want to believe in a God of love and grace and compassion. Like, I don't want that kind of God. Like, what kind of a good father would that be to punish his children like that, that he created? How many of you guys have ever heard someone say something like that before? Yeah, several of you guys in here. I want to address this really quickly. I think it's really important to note this before I get into this. There are a lot of people out there in culture and in, in, in the world around us that they, they truly do respect who Jesus is. They, they, they love the side of Jesus that is loving and compassionate and gracious. But did you guys know that it is Jesus himself who talked about hell and judgment more than anyone else in the New Testament? I heard a, a pastor once say this, to reject the doctrine of judgment from Jesus is to literally say to God, God, I'm way more compassionate than you are, and I'm so much more less judgmental than you are. You see how incredibly self-serving that is? So let's dive into this. Like, how do we, how do we make right of, of this doctrine here? One commentary that I read this week, I thought just wrapped this up so perfectly. It said this, The idea of heaven is very easy to embrace. Even a non-religious funeral, you know, different people comfort each other with the words as, she's in a better place now. When the Bible's teaching about judgment is dismissed, all victims of injustice, violence, and oppression are put at risk. 
If God is a God of love without the accountability of justice, then vulnerable people become more vulnerable and bullies are encouraged to continue bullying. If there is no ultimate accounting for evil, what hope is there for Holocaust victims regarding Hitler? What do we say to the little girls who have been sold in a sex trade by greedy, oppressive scoundrels? What do we say to the boy who's been abused by his tyrannical father or the unassuming elderly widow who was robbed at gunpoint? It is too simple to merely say that our God is a God of love and nothing else. If God decided to put his gavel down once and for all, don't we see that this would create so many more problems than it would solve? If a judging God did not exist, then we would be living in a world of chaos in which the strong would eat the weak and only the powerful and cruel would survive. Jesus' warnings about judgment invite us to flee beneath the shadow of his wings for shelter and refuge. The reason he talks so much about God's wrath because he earnestly desires that we never have to taste it. In a world that is so evil and crooked and we watch the media and it's just disgusting, the stuff that we're seeing around the world, I think we all know deep down that we need a God who feels indignation every day over the evil and the sin that is out there. It would be a greater tragedy if God never dealt with these things. We would be terrified to discover that he was a judge who never condemned and never punished and never dealt with the evil and the crimes of the world, right? That wouldn't be a judge. If God is God and encompasses all characteristics to their absolute fullest, he is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of compassion, but he also has to be a God of justice and judgment. And I know that that can be an uncomfortable thing to hear, but uh, hang with me in this message because I'm going to show you why this doctrine of judgment also reveals a deep, deep compassion from the Lord and so much love from God as well. This transitions us to verse 8 of our text this morning. Let's read verse 8 and 9. It says this, But do not overlook this one fact. Here Peter says this again. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter talks about how the scoffers overlooked the fact that God had intervened in creation. But now he's talking about, to his own audience, he's saying, do not overlook this fact. Believe this, that God is operating on a completely different time scale than you are. He's delaying his coming. He is so patient. He is a God who is slow to anger and compassionate, abounding in love. Time is of no consequence to our God. And he is giving time for people to come to repentance. Peter is referring to what we have seen in, in Psalm 90 verse 4 where it says that a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Folks, Jesus is coming back. The way we view slowness is not like the Lord. 
He knows what is best. He is sovereign. He is operating outside of our time scale. Believe this, that he is a God of his promise and his word reveals it to us. He has intervened and he's coming back one day to judge. But he is a patient God. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is such comforting and compassionate news that he has delayed his coming. How many of you guys were saved uh, in high school or later in, in your life? Would you mind just raising your hand? Yeah, all across this room. Aren't you thankful for a God who was slow to delay his coming so that you could come to Christ? A pastor, uh, Tony Marita, in his commentary on Second Peter, said this this week. I love this. We may wonder as we look at all the injustice in the world, God, why are you being so slow? Why do we have to wait on you? Fast and slow are, de- are dependent on, on, on your perspective. Children are impatient because they're so young, right? A seven-year-old, he, he wants a bike. And, and someone says, wait three weeks and the price will drop from $100 to $30. There's going to be a massive sale, right? And, and any adult, if you were to tell an adult that, they'd be like, done. Like, I'm waiting for that, right? That's reasonable. But the child's going to respond so different, right? They're going to say, you don't love me. Three weeks? I might be dead by then, right? Patience is slowness. To the child. But Peter says soon means in God's own horizon, God's own timetable, in his own timing. And I love that we just get a huge, huge picture of the heart of God in this passage. He's so beyond us. He's operating on such a different scale than us, a different table than us. And he is slow to delay his coming in judgment because what? He doesn't wish that any should perish but come to repentance. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. He wants the world to repent. Swallow your pride and repent. Again, this is the beauty of the gospel. The message isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, memorize all of scripture, attend church for 365 days in a year, and then you can come to Christ. No, swallow your, pot, your pride, repent, and come to me. Believe in me. Believe that I died. Believe that I rose again and that I'm ascended and I'm coming back one day. This is such good news. Those that don't stand on Judgment Day are are not the good ones. They're the repentant ones. So, So what are we repenting of, you ask? All of this world, all this evil in this world is a result of something called sin. Every one of us, it tells us in Romans, falls short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is actually death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a slow and a patient God who wants all to come to repentance. But the problem with the world is that the natural man wants the world to be about me. Right? I don't need to submit to a God. I don't need to repent. I don't need to give anyone my life. Remember in the beginning when I started and I talked about the idea of the big day, how we all want that big day? 
That is such a mentality of this world, though, on such a larger scale for everything in life. I want the world to revolve around me. I want everyone to celebrate me every day. It's all about my satisfaction, my life, my fun, my happiness. I don't really care about other people. Guys, we weren't made for that. Things don't go well when that, that is our mentality. A prideful, me-centered universe does not give us fulfillment. This is why scripture actually speaks that if we actually lose ourselves, we actually find ourselves in Christ. That, that when we decrease, he actually increases. And we find great satisfaction in that. So many of you guys can attest to that. When we humble ourselves and, and, and Jesus is on the throne and, and we submit to Jesus and, and he's full of majesty and he's getting the glory, there is a great peace and satisfaction that comes over us. Aren't you thankful for Jesus who was judged for me and you? And the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that we could find eternal life? I repent and I believe in you and my judgment day now is moved from future to past because of Jesus. This is the heart of God. He is slow and he is patient in delaying his coming so that sinners can repent. Let's look at verse 10. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But though he is a slow and though he is a patient God, there is a day coming. It'll come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. As believers sitting here, this verse, so we, we just found great encouragement in, in knowing that Jesus, that God is slow and he's patient. But this verse right here, guys, should give us great urgency in our Christian lives. And let me, let me explain why. It should give us great urgency in living on mission because we do not know how much time we will have or when Christ will come back. We should have some urgency in sharing the gospel with the people in our lives. We get one shot at this life. The day of the Lord should cause us to live on mission. Guys, I heard this quote this week by an atheist. Okay, this is coming from an atheist, and, and check this out. This, this atheist woman said this, I don't respect people who don't share the gospel. I don't respect that at all. If you actually believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could actually be going to that hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that that's not really worth telling them because it makes you socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? <laughs> that was so powerful this week reading that. What if that was our perspective <laughs> on a daily basis as it, as it relates to living on mission. Not only should it cause us to live with urgency to share the gospel, but it, it should spur us on to dwell and to think about eternity. To pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Something I, I realized in, in my prep this week and something that I was incredibly convicted of was, was the fact that I truly don't think about the day of the Lord enough. I don't think about his coming. I don't think about eternity as I ought to. And when I do, though, I'm spurred on to live a life of obedience. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the urgency of our calling. I'm reminded of the Great Commission and what I'm called to do and make disciples. When I do this, I'm so much more aware of the things that I ought to be thinking about, right? There's a story I, I heard recently, and there's this man, his name is Richard Baxter. He was a well-known pastor ministering in the 1600s, and he, he ended up discipling the entire village where he actually pastored. It was incredible, and, and he's written so many great uh, Christian books, and he's written some theological books, and he, he's published tons of pages uh, of study for the Bible, and he accomplished all of this while going through deep trials and deep suffering. And somebody asked Richard Baxter once, they said, Richard, given all of your sufferings, how in the world have you managed to be so productive and faithful all of these years? And he responded, he said, I think about heaven for 30 minutes a day. Wow. What would it look like if we spent 30 minutes of our day dwelling on eternity, thinking about the coming of our Lord Thinking about eternity, what would that do? This reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote that says this, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. I'm going to read that again. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who actually thought most of the next In conclusion today, I want to invite the band to come on up here and, and I want to point us to a few questions and, and practical application as we leave here this morning. So how can we think more on the day of the Lord? How can we dwell more on eternity? Well, guys, we have the Word of God. The inspired Word of God that He has given us. We have this to dwell and think upon. I want to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5 this morning, because this gives us a glimpse of what it's going to be like one day. And can I encourage you guys, set aside a moment this week and read through Revelation 21 and 22, and dwell on that passage. Think about it, meditate on it. I'm telling you, you're affections for Christ will be stirred. But Revelation 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's just a glimpse. What an amazing thing to meditate on. Folks, Jesus is coming back. God is slow and he is patient because he wants people to turn to him. But he will come back like a thief in the night. And this should cause us to live with urgency, to live on mission. This should cause us to dwell and sit at the feet of our Savior and meditate and long for his return. Wait on the Lord. Find hope in knowing that your faith is secure in him. Here's an amazing truth. If you believe this, whatever you guys are going through right now, can I tell you that it's temporary? And, I, and I'm not downplaying the pain. I'm not downplaying your experience that you're going through right now. I'm not downplaying that you might not be feeling things really deeply right now. Jesus himself wept. But when we are reminded of this truth, it gives us deep confidence that the war has been won by Christ, that all things will be made new, that there will be no more tears, that there will be no more suffering, that we will dwell in peace with God. Believe this promise. Remember this promise. Dwell on this promise this week. Folks, there is a big day coming. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for that day? Are you living with hopeful expectation of that day? Do you think about this? Have you repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Today can be the day of salvation. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? I can't think of a better way to, to, to walk away from this message than to, to worship, right? To sing out, to sing joyfully, to cry out, to pray. I want to invite, if, if any of you guys are, want to, feel free that the altar up here will be open to pray before the Lord and humble yourself before him. Sit down and pray in your seat. Dwell and think about the return of the Lord. Think about eternity. Let's fix our mind. Let's get the distractions of this world away from us. Let's recenter our affection and our gaze on Christ. Let's stand together. Let's sing, oh, praise the name. Sing it out, folks.